If you have your scriptures, open them to Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to finish the book of Ephesians today. And I, some of you are probably uh, glad that we're getting to the end of it. But uh, I, for one, have, have greatly enjoyed this series in Ephesians. It's been 35 weeks, uh, almost a year, that we have uh, been looking at the book of Ephesians. So if you have Ephesians 6.18 open, uh, we'll read that. If you don't, there's an insert in your bulletin. It's the uh, text itself. You're welcome to use that as well if you don't have your, your Bible with you or you just want to follow along with this, with this particular text. I'll begin with verse 18. Now hear God's Word. Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication, to that end keep alert. With all perseverance make supplication for all the saints. And also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak, so that you may know how I am and what I am doing. Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose that you may know how we are and that he may encourage uh, your hearts. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. This is the word of the Lord. We've been looking at this magnificent letter, and the book of Ephesians is very short. You can read the whole book in about, even if you're a slow reader, you can read it in about 15 to 20 minutes. So it's not a long letter. Paul composed this letter, uh, presumably while he was in prison. Uh, scholars differ exactly on when these books were written and from where, but some we are more sure of than others. And Paul addressed this letter to the saints. Now, later on, scribes added to the Ephesians because the letter was a circular letter. And so the copy that we have, which is not the autograph, it's not the actual one Paul or perhaps Tychicus, this faithful minister he mentions, uh, wrote on behalf of Paul or at the dictation of Paul, which was the common practice in that day, This letter was meant for all these churches that were in a circuit around the great city of Ephesus. And so Paul is a little general in the letter of Ephesus. He doesn't name specific people and anything like that, but he does uh, address the Ephesians and the churches which surrounded Ephesus, which this letter probably went to and was read by all of them. As I told you at the very beginning of our series, Paul puts forth what we have called throughout this time together the grammar of the gospel. In order to speak language of any kind, you have to have grammar. You have to have syntax. You have to be able to put words together in a reasonable and understandable way. You have to have vocabulary. And Paul pulls together under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit an ingenious a grammar of the gospel. The book is six chapters and it's neatly, almost perfectly divided. In the middle, the first three chapters, Paul in his grammar uses verbs that are in the indicative, what we call indicative. In other words, they're verbs of who you are, being. And Paul goes to links saying, here's who you are, church, believers in Jesus. You are this. Then 
very neatly in the middle, he goes on for the rest of the book saying, now that you know who you are, do this, be this, act this way. And he gives us a a wonderful ethic for Christian life and living and faith. He begins his book with a doxology. Praise to God, he says. He ends his book with a blessing from God, which I just read, a blessing to you from Him. So he starts praising God. He ends passing that blessing on to his people. Paul, if you look carefully at your, at your Bible, at Ephesians, you'll see that he says grace and peace at the beginning. At the very end, he seems to reverse these words and he says peace and grace. Paul is using a device that was very common in the ancient world, particularly in Hebrew, called an inclusio, where he sandwiches everything he's saying between two great themes. Grace and peace, peace and grace. And then he adds two more words, love and faith. We're going to look at that in a moment. And for this gospel, this good news, this message of God coming into the world and reconciling or making things right between us and God, for this gospel, Paul calls himself an ambassador in chains. That's the grammar of this great and magnificent book. So let's conclude the book today by looking at three things. Who we are. Paul does not, does not in any way ignore this. He tells you at the end of his book who you are. Then he tells us in a most profound way with a few words what we're to do. So who we are, what we're to do. And finally, Paul says, I think what is going to thrill you the most is why we are who we are and why we do what we do. Got it? That's your outline. Who we are, what we do, and why we are who we are and do what we do. So let's get into it. Who are we? In verse 20, he says, we are ambassadors in chains. Paul is using a very common theme, a theme that he loves in his letters, this paradoxical idea that we are ambassadors to God, from God but at the same time, slaves. This kind of language, this kind of thinking, and this particular tension was unknown in the Middle East. In fact, to be a slave was the last thing in the world anybody would have wanted. And Paul ingeniously pairs together and weds together this idea of being an ambassador, one who wears the very, uh, the, the very name of his king to the royal court to stand before kings and represent his king as an ambassador to other royal. He was an emissary, a royal emissary, to pair and wed that with something as demeaning as being a slave would have shocked those readers. Now for us in the modern world, I mean, we're free, we're Americans, and that's great, but in that day, slaves were slaves. And Paul combines the two in a most amazing way. 
The great theologian, now long dead, but F.F. Bruce said, Paul thinks of himself, listen, as an ambassador of Jesus Christ, duly accredited. In other words, Jesus is the one who laid the robe of emissary on Paul. Duly accredited to represent his Lord, his King, at the imperial court of Rome. You know, you can say what you want to about our political leaders, but nobody in their right mind, except some of them sometimes think that they're gods, but none of us do, right? A lot of leaders live under this illusion that somehow they're divine. We know they're not. And so, in that world, the opposite was true. The leader believed himself to be divine, and a lot of his people believed him to be divine. And so for Paul to have appeared before Caesar in Rome or any of the other apostles to, be, to appear before these high and mighty rulers would have been extraordinary. They weren't just appearing before men. They were appearing before sons of God. Before divine beings that uh, uh, were frightening and had total control over life and death. If he said, off with your head, it was off with your head. And in Paul's case, it was that for him at the end. But Paul sees himself as this ambassador in chains. This new identity. Think of this, folks. Paul talks about this throughout his letter. Something we stressed over and over, particularly in the first three chapters. That there is a new identity that we enjoy in Christ. In other words, the old man has been put to death and a new man has taken his place. A new person is alive. Filled with the life of God. Filled with the Spirit of God. Paul says, you were this, but now you're this. And he goes to lengths to do it in the first three chapters of Ephesians. Paul's personal unworthiness, which we all feel. Look, I, you know, I come up every Sunday, folks, and I preach to you and I administer the sacraments, a privilege that only a teaching elder in our denomination, only a teaching elder can institute the Lord's Supper. And I will have the privilege next week of baptizing two of our beautiful babies, only a teaching elder. And I, you know, in all honesty, I have to be honest with you, I am thrilled to be able to do it and I feel it a great privilege to do it. But I have to tell you, I personally live in tension with my own personal unworthiness to stand before you and speak God's Word or administer those sacraments. And I know that each of you struggle with that. You say, how can I stand before God? How can I be acceptable to Him? And Paul tells you how. He chose you before the foundation of the world to salvation. Before you were born, before you knew anything about Him, He reached down through time and eternity and He set His seal, His love upon you in particular. And He will say to these beautiful babies next week, you're mine. And He says to each of you, you're mine. You may fail. I will not fail. You may struggle with unworthiness. You may see yourself only as a slave, but I am saying you're an ambassador, my ambassador for me before the world. And Paul is very bold to do this. 
He gives three reasons. Look at them. Why he has an ambassador in chains. In chapter 3, I'm going to remind you of these and then you'll see the third one. In chapter 3, he says, I'm an ambassador in chains on behalf of the Gentiles. Again, scandalous. He's going to to the people that were not Jewish and proclaiming the good news of their inclusion into the covenant family of God. How would we ever have made our way into God's good graces when we weren't born to it? And Paul says, I'm an ambassador to tell the outsiders you're in. You're in because of grace. You're included because He loves you. He has made you worthy by His power and by His strength. I'm an ambassador. I'm an ambassador on behalf of you Gentiles. In chapter 4, he says, I'm an ambassador in chains on behalf of the Lord. So Gentiles, now the Lord. And here in chapter 6, he says, I'm an ambassador in chains on behalf of the Gospel. Look at Paul's orientation, something we talk about almost every week, folks, something that all of us struggle with. The orientation of our hearts is which direction? Almost 100% of the time. To self. And Paul shows us the orientation of the heart of a believer in Jesus should be outside, other-oriented. And only when we are other-oriented can we then really see ourselves for who we really are. New creatures in Christ, that we have the Spirit of God living within us, that there is actually hope for us because of who we are. Do you see it? It's really quite magnificent. We often serve God. It's been said by many people, but we often serve God. And if you're like me, you're in this class. We serve Him for His benefits, for what He can do for us. Yes? Oh, if I just come to Jesus, all my problems will go away. But there comes a time in every one of our lives, folks, when, when that has got to shift. That's part of, of growing, up, growing up. You want to be able to grow up to where you are no longer seeing God as a genie in a bottle. You know, you rub and out He comes and you command and you, you know, you're there for His benefits. But you start to see Him for who He is. You love Him for Himself. You seek Him because of Him. And C.S. Lewis and other people have said, if you aim for earth, you get neither heaven nor earth. But if you aim at heaven, you get heaven and earth. You get them both. And often our trajectory and our orientation is all wrong. And that's part of the growing process, part of the learning process. Don't you want your children, your little ones, to, when they're little tiny, they've got to think about themselves, right? They will starve. Their diapers will be soiled. They won't be able to care for themselves. Of course they're self-oriented. But don't you look, parents, for in your, the life of your children slowly for them to begin taking care of themselves and then hopefully at some point they're taking care of others and ultimately, hopefully they'll take care of you. We look for that. We long for that. And we see that marker as one of maturation. And Paul says, I serve God. I'm an ambassador in chains outside, outside, outside. For God, for His people, 
for the Lord, for His Gospel. And that makes Paul secure in himself. And I'm telling you, that's true self-esteem. That will get you, that'll put your, that'll put you on turbo in your life. You will no longer be flagellating and hating and self-loathing, but you will see yourselves as delightfully beloved and furiously followed and chased by a living God. And at the same time, that very belief will humble you to the ground and create a gratitude and a praise that you will not be able to contain. And if you want your life to change in that way, you must pair those two realities. An ambassador for the king and yet a slave to the Lord Himself. It conquers self-centeredness. It conquers self-protection. It conquers our pride. Those two. One will lead you to self-loathing. The other will lead you to pride. Pair them together and you become like the image of Jesus. The most humble of all men who humbled Himself even to the death on the cross. He was a servant of all. And yet... He had the, the passion and the stridency to say, no one comes to the Father but by Me. I am the gate. I am the door. I am the shepherd. I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd. I, I, I'm, the, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I mean, on and on. Jesus had the boldness to express His who-ness. And still be humble. And that's what we're looking for in our lives. That's what, parents, that's what you want to, 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 to create in your children. A sense of high worth and value. You're the most valuable thing in the world to me. And at the same time, a deep sense of humility and neediness and service to the world. Yes. If you compare those in yourself and in your children, there is hope for this world. Do you see it? That's what it is. Why? Love for God and love for, for Him and His Gospel will produce an other orientation. That is who we are, folks. We've been made that. Secondly, very quickly, what we do. Paul says, although we're ambassadors in chains, although we're slaves in chains, we are the most free People, look, I don't care what part of the world you can live in the most oppressive government in the world or you can live in the United States where we have many wonderful rights, although some of them are threatened and some of us are nervous about the threat and they're real. I'm not going to deny that. The threats against religious freedom in the United States are real. But folks, here's what you can put in the bank. Here's the hope of the Gospel. That though they slay me, though they kill me, what? Yet shall I live. Freedom in Christ is our hope. Not in governments and laws and things like that. As worthy as they are as good. And we should pray for righteous government. We should strive for righteous leaders and righteous government. But folks, if you put your ultimate value there and your ultimate hope there, you will be sorely disappointed. All you need to do is read any history book. Yes? Just read. Read history. Trust in the Lord and you can be free even in the freest country like America or in the most oppressive place.
places on earth like western Syria and eastern Iraq where ISIS, a demonic and evil organization, is absolutely slaughtering people. Their own people and Christians. And anyone else they choose. How can you be free in a culture like that? Paul tells you because he lived in that culture. You can be free in Christ. And he gives us four words. We don't have time to go through them. I'm going to do them quickly. But listen carefully. He tells us peace in his benediction. Peace to you. Peace, very very quickly folks. Peace is not the absence of trouble. Peace is the presence of God. And so your circumstances are not what produce peace for you. Peace is solid It is shalom. It is an interior and internal well-being that is rock solid. That the storms of life can assail the waves of, of heartache and disease and brokenness and fear and doubt can crash against that. And they do. Yes, in all of our lives, these things assail us. And God promises, my peace I give to you. That your joy may be full. So that the circumstances of life and who does not know the roller coaster of circumstances in your life. One day we have plenty. Next day we don't have anything. One day we're 25 years old and healthy and nothing can hurt us. Next day we're 60 years old and we're falling apart. People have asked me how I'm doing these last few days. Here's my answer. Though the outward man looks okay, The inward man is perishing day by day. I'm dying inside. And you all know what I'm talking about. Chemotherapy, radiation. These things go in there. They kill you inside. And so, yeah, I look okay outside. But inside, it's a horror. And you know what I'm talking about. Many of you face those types of things. The roller coaster. One day good, next day bad. You know what? Lay hold of Jesus Christ and you can have peace, a solidity, not an ephemeral Zen experience, but a real true rock foundation in your life that will not move. Though you are whipped around like a boat on on a a tether to an anchor, you may get whipped around like a boat in in a hurricane and thrown all over, up and down, right and left, here and there, underwater, sometimes back above But didn't we just sing it? Didn't you sing those words? What did it say? My anchor, what? Holds within the veil. Will you do that? You'll find peace. Paul knew it. Love. Love. Let me put it very simply. Love is not a feeling. You all know that. You've heard it a million times. It is an active commitment that is costly to you. It can produce a feeling, and we all pray for that, that if you love, you will feel uh, feelings of love. But it's not primarily love. It's an active commitment. It's, It's saying this, folks. Love is saying this. Me for you. That's what you say to your spouse. That's what you say to your children. That's even what you say at your job, if you want to keep your job. Me for you. You tell your boss, right? That's love, me for you. Why do we say it? Because God said it on the cross in His Son Jesus to you. He loved us this way. He gave His Son. He said this, me 
for you. Opposite of every world religion, even parts of Christianity, sorry to say, every world religion and parts of Christianity say we have to give God to like us. God says, no, I like you. <laughs> it's the opposite. Do you see that? Me for you, God says. And then he says, now, because I've given you me, now you for me or you for them. You see, that's where it is. Love is a commitment. It's costly. It's costly. Love is going to cost you. C.S. Lewis, I've given you this quote before. I love it. It's from his book, The Four Loves. And uh, he says, and I've paraphrased it a little bit. Just, so just listen quickly. To love anything, Lewis says, is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it safe in the casket or coffin of your own selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The only place outside of heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers of love is hell. Love's going to cost you. Don't be afraid. It's worth it. Faith. Throughout the series we've talked about faith. Faith is objective. Faith is not a feeling. Faith is not a force. It's not something you have that you extend to God. Faith is something that is produced by a worthy object. A person. We have faith in God and therefore your belief is substantial and real and strong and powerful. Even if it's imperfect. We somehow think we had a perfect faith and I can't have any doubt and all that. No, everybody doubts. But folks, look. Look at this, look at this thing. This stand. You can put all the faith in the world, the most sincere faith, in this stand that this stand will somehow save you. And you all know it can't save you. I don't care how much faith you put in it. I mean, I could knock it over like this. But put one drop, one ounce, one tiny bit of faith in Jesus Christ and your faith takes on all of that. Do you see? The power and strength. That's why Jesus said, do you believe? I would ask people this. We read it wrong, but I'm going to accent it for you the right way. Do you believe that I am able to do this? Do you see? You can accent it anywhere you want. You can say, do you believe that I am able to do this? Do you believe that I am able to do this? I mean, you could go any different direction, accent, any word, but put the word where it belongs, put the accent where it belongs on Him. Yes? Do you believe that I am able to do this? There were miracle workers everywhere in the Middle East. They were on every corner. And Jesus was differentiating Himself, saying, I'm different. Do you believe I am able to do this? Faith 
is objective. And finally, and, and uh, the fourth one, grace. We could say so much about grace. I don't have time, but listen. Grace is not the opposite of law. Grace and law are not opposite. In fact, the law of God is immensely graceful. Yes? So do not pit grace and law. That is wrong theology. Grace stands alone. It's a unique. There's no balance to grace. There's no way to diminish grace. And there's no way to make it more than what it is. Grace is the disposition of God that says before anything else, I, out of the good pleasure of my own will, choose to do thus and so for you just because. And I have had this discussion with people forevermore. Why, when I get to heaven and ask God why He saved me, will He tell me? And I always tell people, you know what He's going to tell you? Here's exactly what He's going to say. You're going to wonder, how did I know? But I, I know. I'm the pastor. I know things. Here's, here's what He's going to say. He's going to pat you on the head and He's going to say, you know why I saved you? Because I love you. Why do you love me, Lord? Let's, let's find something really good in here. He's going to say, you know, I loved you because of me. Not because of you. And hopefully, folks, that will produce in you an adoration, a worship, a gratitude that will actually last for eternity. You will go, you know what? Wow, that is so true. Grace is God acting. Write this down. Grace is God acting not, not, not in spite of your sin and weakness. Grace is God acting because of your sin and weakness. Not in spite of, because of. God commended His love towards you in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. Can you Presbyterians say amen to that at least? Does that blow you away? Yes, it should. Grace is a one-way trajectory from God to you from heaven as we say at Christmas time each year I remind you that the trajectory of God's grace is from heaven to earth in the incarnation it is a one way trajectory listen to this from him to us in us with us for us as us and finally through us like an explosion into the world. Do you see it? From Him to us, in us, with us, for us, as us, and through us to the world. Its shape, the shape of grace is the shape of a cross. Grace does not equal leniency. Grace does not mean God saying ollie ollie oxen free. Grace does not mean I'll pass over. No. Grace means somebody dies and it's not you, it's Him. Look at the cross and you will see what grace equals. You'll see the equation of the Gospel. 
Grace does not mean you get a pass on your sin or that He will overlook or wink at anything. He watched every moment of the expiration of the life of His Son. His eyes were fixed. We say in our songs and our poetry that He turned His face away. Don't believe it. Our God watched His Son die and His nostrils inhaled the sweet savor of that smoke of that offering going up and He said it is finished as well as His Son. Yes, yes, it is finished as well as His Son said it. So did the Father. And He accepted that sacrifice for us and as us. The grace of God. Why? Why are we who we are? Why do we do what we do? That's the difference, folks, between Christianity and every... Christianity, its ethics is, are not unique. Every religion says don't kill, regardless of what you may think about Islam, there's strict forbidding of killing in Islam. Regardless of what you may think about Hinduism, Buddhism, whatever. There are strict prohibitions against most things that even Christianity strictly forbids. Almost every religion says we're to extend compassion and all these things. Very similar. There are differences and some of them are significant. But folks, what really divides Christianity? It's ethics and it's morals? No. It's who is behind those ethics and morals And more importantly, listen carefully because this can revolutionize your life. Why we do what we do. Who He is and why. Whose we are. Not who we are. You with me? Okay, why do we do what we do? Paul, at the very end of this letter, he invokes the Holy Trinity. He says in verse 18, praying in the Spirit. Then in the latter verses, 23 and following, he says, love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is not the only time. We don't have time to go back and look at the other references, but this is not the only time that Paul says that the Holy Trinity, this mysterious being who exists, one essence, one being, and yet in three persons, it's Impossible to explain. Don't do it by water and ice and vapor and four-leaf clovers and all those other things. They all fail to express the mystery of the Holy Trinity. But one thing we do know is this, that the Holy Trinity in some mysterious way all agreed and the Father said, I will choose who I want to save. And the Son said, I will go and I will be a man and I will save them. And the Holy Spirit says, Amen. I will go and I will live with them for the rest of eternity, not just while they're alive on earth, but I will bring them to you, God, and I will bring them to live with us forever in that beautiful relationship that no one can imagine, that no eye has seen, no ear has heard, neither has it entered into the heart of man what God has prepared for them who love Him. Do you see that? Your whole salvation, your whole life, folks, is all bound up in this reality. And I hope I don't lose you now. But I'm going to take a chance. Your life is bound up in this one 
eternal truth. And Paul said it over and over in his letter. I choose you. Before the foundation of the world, I predestined you. I elected you. Now I know that sends shivers up a lot of people's backs. But I'm not ashamed because it's the gospel of Jesus. Charles Spurgeon said this, I believe the doctrine of election because I am quite certain that if God had not chosen me, I never would have chosen Him. And He must have chosen me before I was born because I know He would never have chosen me afterwards. And He must have elected me for reasons unknown to me because I never could find a reason in myself why He should have looked upon me with special love. Can you say that? Will you trust this God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who loved you in this way? Will you do it? Before the foundation of the world? Before you've done any good or bad? Just because He loves you? He spent His Son for you. Will you trust Him? I hope you will. Father, uh, thank You for Your grace and Your mercy. So many of us stand here amazed that we were ever in, in any way welcome to this beautiful table where the food is exquisite. The most valuable and priceless of fare. The very body and blood of Your Son given for us and we're invited to take and eat and see and taste and experience the mercy of God. His welcome and His embrace. Holy Father, please, as we come to Your table, I pray that that prepared table will in some way this day revolutionize the lives of Your people. Thank You for the beautiful book of Ephesians. Thank You for loving us before the foundation of the world, setting Your love on us. Thank You for being gracious in this way. And now, Father, we ask that You would feed us in our hearts by faith, that we may leave here with joy and gladness forevermore. Amen.